Amen. Lord, we thank you and we praise you and we do. We lay down our lives before you as we get ready to enter into a new year. Lord, I pray that our, we would once again afresh lay our lives at your feet, surrender completely to you. Lord, we wouldn't be satisfied with lukewarm Christianity or the status quo in our walk. But Lord, I pray we'd be more on fire for you next year than we were this year. Lord, that we'd have a greater love for the world around us next year than we did this year. Lord, that we'd be more faithful to use the gifts you've given us next year than we did this year. Lord, I just thank you and praise you that we can gather here tonight. No place I'd rather be than celebrating with our family. We love you. We praise you. We ask as we go to your word that your Holy Spirit would speak. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. amen. All right. Well, God bless you guys. Blessed are the faithful on New Year's Eve. God bless you guys. Smaller crowd tonight. We must be the ones that had no, no place else to go. Is that what happened? Or, Like I said, there's nowhere else I'd rather be. Amen? Well, I missed you guys on Sunday. I heard great things. You know, it's always nice to put your assistant pastors on three hours notice that they're teaching. Blessed are the, uh, the flexible and, you know, be ready in season and out of season, those kinds of things. And so my voice was completely gone, and my throat was gone, and I appreciate your prayer. It's not 100% back yet, but God is good, and in our weakness, He's made strong. Amen? All right, turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the Old Testament. We will be in 1 John chapter 2 on Sunday, uh, verses 7 through 17, I believe it is, or 18, somewhere in there. So read ahead in preparation for Sunday. Now, last time in Genesis 36, we looked at a genealogy, the genealogy of Esau. If you remember, Esau is a type or a picture of the flesh. And there was only one chapter dedicated to all his descendants. Because Esau, being a man of the flesh, raised children of the flesh and grandchildren of the flesh. And the generations that came after him, for the most part, were extremely wicked. And the only time you see them after the genealogy in chapter 36 is when they're mentioned in some type of interaction with the children of Israel. Other than that, they're gone. And this just goes to show that, you know, while they were great in number because God promised they would be, it didn't mean they were great as far as their relationship with God. Their lives were not fruitful. They were idol worshipers. You know what, guys? The truth is this, that every one of us, our lives are either going to count and have an impact on eternity or they're not. And you see the Edomites, they didn't. They were men of, of the flesh, and they were people of the flesh, and sadly, they followed in the footsteps of Esau. I titled the message last time, A Man Driven by the Flesh, and he disregards God's commands concerning marriage. Let me encourage you to grab the CDs or in the back. He's moved more by worldly possessions than the Word of God. He passes his ungodly values on to his children. He becomes just like the world around him, and his children often take his ungodliness to another level. The reason I'm pointing that out is because we're going to see kind of a contrast that tonight, as we move from looking at Esau to the next 13 chapters, speak of the, actually 14 chapters, speak of the lineage of Jacob. So you have the lineage of Esau, one of the twins, one chapter, genealogy, nothing good. Now 14 chapters focusing on the, you know, the ancestors, the tribes of Jacob. Now, the main focus is going to be Joseph. And if you've never taken time to study Joseph, you're in for a treat over the next several months because I love this guy. 
And I'll tell you, sometimes I think that he can be overlooked, and sometimes people give attributes to him that I don't think are fair. I'll be honest with you, I don't see one recorded sin in Joseph's life. And Joseph was a sinner like all of us, in desperate need of a Savior. But I really like this guy, and I really like this guy, because he was living in a time that's even worse than the time we live in today. He was surrounded by ungodliness. He was surrounded by idolatry. His own family at the time was not doing too well, if you'll remember. And in the middle of all of that, you've got Joseph. You've got the one son who's willing to make a stand for God, even when his brothers are blowing it, even when his dad has been silent in the past over the Dinah incident. Here's one who's faithful. And so he's going to be an example for us as we examine his life. But there's three things I want us to see over these next 13 chapters, 14 chapters. First, we're going to get the answer as to how the children of Israel got to Egypt. Have you ever wondered that? How did they, they, got, they were in Egypt for 400 years. How did they get there? Well, we're going to find that out. We're going to find out that certainly it was a part of God's plan for them to go to Egypt. Back in Genesis 15, it said, Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in the land and that, that is not theirs, and they will serve them, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So God had already prophesied that there was a time coming in Abraham's descendants that they were going to be slaves for 400 years. We're going to see what brings them to Egypt. We're going to see that in the next several chapters. Now, at the point right now, Israel's not a great nation. But what's awesome is, while they're in bondage, they become a great nation. So often we think in the midst of trials, we're just holding on. Can I encourage you that that's the time of the greatest growth most of the time? It's when you're going through the greatest trials and we think we're trying to hold on and I just got to get past this so then I can start serving God again. And the reality is that it's in the midst of that that you're going to grow the most if you'll allow God to do a work in you. And guess what? The children of Israel, when they go into Egypt, are around 70 or so men. And when they leave, they have 600,000. They really grow in the midst of their time of bondage. So we're going to see them going into Egypt and how that happens. Second, we're going to see the godly example of Joseph's faithfulness in the midst of trials. He's going to have 13 years of trials. And guys, we're going to see it tonight. He gets the promises up front. He gets the vision from God up front. And God doesn't tell him one time about the trials. And God does that sometimes, doesn't he? He says, here's my plan for your life. And here's what I want to do in you. And here's what I'm going to do through you. And now you have vision and passion for the things of God. And all of a sudden, these trials start coming. We need to realize that God knew they were coming. And 13 years of trials. 13 years. We don't like 13 days. Amen? You know, I've been praying about this for two weeks, and I don't understand. And you know, If God wants to do great work in me, maybe three weeks. Thirteen years. Thirteen years of trials. You don't like to put thirteen years in trials in the same sentence. But that's what we're going to see in Joseph's life. And we're going to see that God is going to do great things in him and through him as he prepares him for something greater. And then lastly, we're going to see the theme of the parallels between Joseph and Jesus. I mean, you go through and you look at Joseph, and Joseph, he's not God, he's, he's centered like us, but a lot of pictures of Jesus Christ. Let me just give you a few real quick. First of all, and these are direct quotes from Scripture, they're both shepherds of their father's sheep, they're both loved by their father dearly, they're both hated by their brothers, sent by their fathers to, their, to reach out to their brothers, uh, others plot to harm them. 
Their robes were ripped from them. They were taken to Egypt. They were sold for the price of a slave. They were tempted. They were falsely accused. They were bound and chained. They were placed with two other prisoners, one who would be saved and one who would be lost. They were exalted after suffering, both 30 years old at the beginning of their public ministry. Both of them wept. Both of them forgave those who wronged them unjustly. They saved their nation and what God did when, what God allowed to come to them in harm turned out for good. All of those are true of Joseph and Jesus. How awesome is that? And guys, so as we're reading through this, be looking at the example of Joseph for us, but also the parallels with Jesus Christ, because Jesus is in every chapter of the Bible. You know, we're going to see this remarkable life of this godly young man who's loved and hated, who's favored and abused, who's tempted and trusted, who's exalted and abased as well, and yet never takes his eyes off of God or stops trusting in him. All of those things he goes through never takes his eyes off of God. Adversity didn't harden his character, and prosperity didn't ruin him. Sometimes adversity destroys us and we want to give up, and sometimes having too much causes us to stop crying out to God. He experiences both, and he keeps looking up all the way through it. Aren't you excited to learn about this guy? I mean, you know, I get excited because I'm studying and I'm looking forward to the next 13 chapters and I'm looking at this guy, Joseph, and I'm excited again. He was the same man in private that he was in public, as Potiphar's wife. He never complained and he never compromised. Boy, that's an example for us, amen? Can you imagine if you, how about that for a New Year's resolution? No complaining, no compromising this year, amen? Lord, help us. Because we know we can't do that by ourselves. Again, like all of us, a sinner in need of a Savior, but one of the greatest examples of a faithful man of God in all of human history. So, if you're a note taker tonight, I titled the message, A Man God Uses. This also could be examples for a woman God uses. First of all, loved by the Father, that should be world, if it says word up there. Loved by the Father, hated by the world. I also wanted to maybe say, a man who speaks the truth no matter what's going on around him. Both of those could be true in the first section. Number two, God gives him a vision. Number three, he is faithful and obedient to his father's will. Number four, he faces or she faces persecution even from those closest to them. God uses him even, uses even the ungodly actions of men to bring about his perfect will in his life. And then finally, even as the world seems to be crashing down around him, he still trusts that God's in control. So let's begin looking at a man God uses. He's loved by the Father. He's hated by the world. Again, if the world loves you, you're doing something wrong. Amen? And those who are used mightily by God are those who are only concerned with being obedient to God much more than being, you know, fa- being uh, popular with the world. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 37. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. So Jacob, like his father, was a stranger in the land, though in the land he had not yet entered into the possession of his inheritance. This was going to be the land they would possess. But before they ever possessed this land, we all know they're going to end up in Egypt for 400 years. Then they're going to come back, and because of rebellion, they're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. It's going to be a long time before they finally really enter in and take the inheritance that God had for them. But they're dwelling in the land, but they're dwelling there more as strangers than as residents. They're more like aliens. Now guys, that's how we ought to be in this land that we live in today. We're aliens here, amen? This is not our home. 
I am so glad, aren't you? This is not our home. What God has for us is so much better than this. And guys, we will not be home until we get to heaven. And guys, that needs to be our focus and our passion, and we need to be looking forward to our heavenly home. So Jacob is dwelling in the land of Canaan. Now remember, he had been up in Shechem. And remember what happened. Back a few chapters ago, they were up with the Shechemites, and his sons went out because their sister had been raped, and Levi and Simeon got this plot and said, if you guys will be circumcised, you can be one of us. And then once they were, they went in and slaughtered them all, and then the other brothers came in and stole everything. And in the middle of all of that, Jacob sat back and said nothing. The only thing he said was, now you're going to bring harm to us. So they had fled from that land, And now we see them back in the land of promise, back in the land of Canaan, but they are strangers there. Verse 2. This is the history of Jacob. And now notice, the focus shifts to one of the sons. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. Joseph, again, didn't ever achieve the status of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't have the promise of God handed down to him. As a matter of fact, it's not even through his line that the Messiah would come. The Messiah is going to come through the line of Judah. The covenant promises weren't given to him in that way. But we're going to see through these next 13 chapters that he is the focal point of the one that God uses out of these 12 children of Israel. And notice, at this point, he's 17. He's 17 years old. He's a young man. You know what? It's never too early to start serving God. Amen? Too often we think, when I get older, when I finish this, when things happen better, then I'll start serving the Lord. And you know what? It's amazing how many times, I, you know, I was a youth pastor for years, and I love to talk about Samuel and Daniel and Joseph. Why? Because they were young men who were being used mightily by God. It says there that he's feeding the flock with his brothers. The word in the original language, says he's the shepherd over the flock. He's really the one who's in charge. So he's his father's favorite, as we're about to see, but he was not spoiled and he was not lazy. You know, I often say that I spoil my kids, and I, you know, I do. But I will say this, we, as we spoil them, we need to make sure, if, you know, as we give them things and we want to give them the best, we need to make sure we're teaching them. Because a spoiled kid learns nothing. And he's good for nothing, ultimately, if he's not being taught something. Amen? And so we need to make sure that along with blessing them, that we're teaching them and we're disciplining them. And so he's his favorite son, but you'll notice he's not lazy. And as we're about to see, he's the truthful one in the bunch. He's not afraid to tell the truth. He's not afraid to work hard. And he's, it's easy to see in a, why, in a reason why he's a favorite of his father, which is a mistake, by the way. We don't have to have favorite kids. Amen. Jacob should have learned that, you think? You know, his dad preferred Esau. His mom preferred him. How did that work out with their family? Whole thing fell apart. So he's 17 years old. He's out there watching over the sheep. He's got a lot of brothers older than him. They're out there too. But notice what what happens. He's feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilphah. Who are those ladies? Those are the concubines that he had children with. So those are Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. So what happens? Look what happens. His father's wives and Joseph brought 
a bad report of them to his father. He told. Right? Now, I've, had, I've heard people say this. You know, Joseph was nothing more than a tattletale. You ever heard people say that? He just ran back and told. You know what? Tattletale is a carnal way of saying that we should try to cover up people's sin. Amen? Can I tell you something? When I was in school, I told. I told. I would go into, I, I remember walking up the hill many times and all the heeds are, I don't know what we call them now, dopers, pot smokers. They'd all be over on the hill smoking weed. And I'd walk by and I said, dude, I'm telling. And I would. I would walk into the principal's office and say, you got about 20 guys down the hill smoking weed right now. Then they'd come up to me later. Did you tell? Uh-huh. I told. I did. I tell. I'm going to tell again, too. How about that? Now, it did help that I was bigger than most of them, so that kind of helped. But the point is this. The point is, it's not ungodly to tell the truth. Amen? Especially when it's done from a heart of, I was burdened for these guys because I knew where their lives were headed. And the same is true of Joseph. He's not telling on his brothers to win favor with his father. He's telling on his brothers to be a faithful shepherd to the sheep. Hey, Dad, my brothers are out there, but they're not watching the sheep. They're not doing their job, Dad. And because they're not doing their job, guess what? The, the, our, you know, our livelihood is in danger. Our family is in danger. It's not wrong to tell the truth, but you'll know if you're doing it right based on the heart that you have. Is it to bring harm to the person, or is it because you're concerned for them? Amen? And so we see the heart of Joseph that, you know, his father loves him, but how do you think your brothers feel about the little brother who tells dad that you're not working? How do you think that's going to go over? Uh, Not too good. We don't like him a little punk brother can't you hear him saying it almost right joseph and again i believe he was being faithful and the reason i believe that if you continue to read on you're not going to see joseph character in line with someone who's trying to get over on people to promote himself that's just not his character his character is different now let me say this tool it not only is it not cool to hide a matter that will ultimately result in someone's harm. When you get to Leviticus, it says this. If a person sins in hearing the utterance of an oath and is a witness, whether he has seen or known of the matter, if he does not tell it, he bears guilt. Here's what that means. If you know that somebody is breaking the law, you heard them make an oath and you know it to be true and you don't tell, you're guilty. What? You might end up getting called narc like I used to in high school, straight edge or whatever, right? But the point is this, if your heart is for God's highest, there's, again, if your motivation is to try to get someone in trouble as opposed to see them, you know, rescued from harm, that's the key, amen? And here we see that the word of God tells us that we should not be ashamed to speak up when it comes to the truth. And again, do it in a way that will bring greater to that person's life not bring destruction a mark of godly integrity is telling the truth godly integrity isn't always well received by those who do not dwell in it if you have integrity and people don't they're not going to like that you have integrity you heard me say this many times we used to live in an immoral society that meant that we had morals and we disobeyed the morals 
right? People knew there were morals, but they chose to disobey. Now we live in an amoral society, which means there are no morals, and the only people that get capped on are the people that have any. Amen? What are you, what's wrong with you? Some kind of religious fanatic? You think that's wrong? It is wrong. Guys, because we're not the judge, the word of God is, amen? And so we see Joseph is one who knows what the truth is, he knows what it's supposed to be, and he's faithful to tell his father the truth because he's more concerned with being obedient to his father than being popular with his brothers. And we need to be more concerned with being faithful to God than popular with the world, amen? But remember, again, our heart should not be one of neener, neener, right? Gotcha, gotcha. Be faithful to God rather than popular with men. Verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Now, this is a mistake. But we can see why initially, right? Who's the hardworking one? Joseph. Who's the one that tells the truth? Joseph. Who's the one in the midst of all this mess going on that he looks at and sees as a godly man? He says, oh, I love him. I love him more. That's a mistake, though. I have to confess to you as a father, do you know who my heart tends to go toward more of my children? The ones struggling the most. Isn't that true, parents? Not that you you love them all the same always, right? But if one is really struggling, don't you find yourself praying for them an extra measure? But here we see the opposite. He's the easy son. I've had enough. And he's the godly son. And he's the good son. And he's the one who tells me the truth. You know, he's my favorite. I hear parents say that sometimes. That's a mistake. Now, it's easy to see why. Because remember, Reuben, the oldest, had slept with one of his wives. You remember that? Simeon and Levi were the ones who hatched up the plan to go down and kill all the Shechemites. It's easy to understand. And then the other four brothers we just heard are laying down on the job and aren't doing their work. Joseph's looking pretty good. But he shouldn't be loving him more than his own children. Because as I said before, it happened in his family and it ended in destruction. But notice what he does to make matters worse. He's already the tattletale from the world's eyes, even though he's being faithful. But it says there, that he's the favorite in his father's eyes of all his children. He loved him more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Okay, he was the son of Rachel. Rachel was the wife he worked 14 years for. And this was the son of his old age. But also, we see, look what he did. Now imagine how this puts a target on Joseph's back. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. So he's the one that tells dad the truth and he's the one that works hard and gets after his brothers when they're laying around and now dad is showing him favoritism and now dad pulls out a special coat and gives it only to Joseph. I learned a long time ago, if you have 12 sons or four kids like I did, you don't bring home one candy bar, you bring home four candy bars, right? You don't give out one coat with many colors. You give out 12 coats or no coats. Amen? I remember learning the hard way when my kids were little. I used to bring home four different kinds of candy. And then you know what would happen? What do you think would happen? They would fight over it. So I started bringing home four identical kinds of candy every day. If I brought home red bag of Skittles, I got brought home four. Then they would just be happy. Yay! Right? Daddy! All right? right? You bring home two different things, and I wanted the yellow, and I wanted the girl. I'll stop. And that's what happens. So you can imagine, can you imagine walking into your house, you got 12 kids, and you call them all over, and you bring out this beautiful coat. Now this coat didn't just, you know, wasn't just something beautiful to wear, but it also was recognition of authority. 
It was like the birthright or the blessing coming from Jacob to say, oh, this is my most favorite son. He is the one that's going to receive everything from me. He is the one that has the authority over you all, even though he's pretty much the youngest one here outside of Benjamin. So we're going to give him the coat, and he's going to have the authority. They already don't like him. Now, I will say this, just so you know, the word many colors there can mean one of two things. It can mean multicolored, but it also can mean long-sleeved. And I don't want to go into all the details. We don't have time to do it now. But in either case, it would speak of significance or authority or uniqueness. And so, and I have an idea it was multicolored. So when he walked around, I mean, you know, everybody, have you ever been to Israel and you've seen what shepherds wear? Can you imagine going out there with a plaid coat and putting on one of them guys? Would that stand out or what? And so here he is, the guy with the multicolored coat. Already, you know, he's the one who tells on dad. He's the favorite. He's wearing the coat. He's the younger brother. He's bossing us around. We don't like him. Have you ever noticed how when you get in your flesh, that when other people have stuff that's better than yours, that you can get envious and not like them, even if you've never met them? I hear people say this all the time. Oh, they think they're better than us. You ever heard anybody say that? Because someone pulls up in real night, oh, they think they're better than us. Look at that car. I think they're better than us. That's more a reflection of our heart, amen? Well, can you imagine Joseph? Yeah, Dad gave me this coat. Now, Joseph's not doing that. But the, the, his brothers are thinking, what is this? Puny little brother telling us on, on us all the time, and now he's got the good coat. You know, if I was Joseph, I think I might not have worn it. But God, his dad gave it to him, and he wore it. So, jo, so he was shown favoritism, and again, it's a sinful flaw in a parent, and no doubt the brothers thought he thinks he's better than us. Look at verse 4. But when the brothers saw their father loved him more than all his brothers, they what? They hated him. Don't do this. Do not pitch your kids against each other. Amen? If you are giving too much to one kid, the other kids are going to be envious. We need to make sure we don't make this mistake. And here we see Jacob thinks he's blessing his son, and all he's doing is bringing division with him and his own brothers. His brothers hated him. Why? Because he was, the, in their mind, the chosen one. He's going to receive the birthright. Jealousy, anger, and bitterness from his brothers. They felt that he had stolen what was theirs. He's younger than me. I should get it. Reuben, I'm the oldest. I should get it. Simeon, I'm older than him. Levi, I'm older than him. Well, guys, guess what? Every one of you has blown it. And notice what it says there. Not only did they hate him, but they could not speak peaceably to him. He couldn't even have a conversation with his brothers. They wouldn't even talk to him. Maybe this is your workplace. Or maybe this is what happens when you go to your family for Thanksgiving. You feel like the oddball because you've been sharing your faith a lot and they kind of look at you and they're, oh yeah, the goody two-shoes Christians here, okay. You know what I mean? We'll wait till he leaves to drink the alcohol. We'll wait till they leave or she leaves or that. And sometimes you can feel like you're the one who is left out. But in Joseph's case, and hopefully in our case if it's happening, it's happening not because we're self-righteous jerks, but because we're standing for the truth and we're standing for the things of God. Amen? So here's Joseph. He's loved by the Father, but he's hated by the world. Amen? He's loved by his earthly father. He's loved by his heavenly father, but his own brothers don't even want to talk to him. They have no time for him. 
And again, this is all preparation for something greater. So a man or a woman God uses, loved by the Father, hated by the world. Number two, God gives him a vision. Now look at verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and he told it to his brothers, and they hated him even more. Dude, you got the coat, and not only do you have the coat, but you, you got, you know, the preferential treatment from dad, you're treated like the favorite son, you got, you're in charge of all the shepherds, you go back and tell on us when we mess up, man, what's up with you? And now he has a dream, and now he's going to tell him the dream. Now, I will say this, I do not believe he was telling the dream, Pastor Day's opinion, to make them angry. I believe that he had heard from God, and he was excited. You have a dream and God tells you something, guess what? There wasn't like a bunch of people around he could tell. And so he goes to his family, his intimate family, and he goes to his brothers and he tells them what God had shown him in this dream. He's excited about it. Now with that being said, I do believe some of the dreams we have are for us alone. Amen? You know, running around, you know what God showed me in a dream? You know what I mean? Come on. Sometimes if God showed you for you, you'll keep it to yourself maybe. Amen? Now, I've had people come up and tell me dreams that God, they think God had for me. And most of the time, not so much. Yeah, dude, I ain't bearing witness with that at all. Now, others, I've had a few. I had one that was so spot on. I think about it now. I, briefly, I, just, I was in Lancaster. My wife and I were praying about whether or not we were supposed to go out and plant a church somewhere. I was really seeking the Lord about it. We had a Sunday night service. And... I was one of the pastors waiting up at the front to pray with people. I was one of the assistant pastors. And this one guy who had been coming to our church for a long time was real quiet. I'd only spoken to him a couple times. He waited until everybody left. And then he said, can I talk to you? And I said, okay. And he said, can I tell you about the dream I had last night? And he said, you were in it, and I need to tell you. Because I've had the dream every night for a week, and I can't stop having it. So I guess I have to tell you so I can stop having it. And I said, okay, bro. And he goes, he had no idea what I was praying about. And he said, so here's what happened. We're standing in this auditorium. It's pitch black. There's clouds in the sky and everything around uh, on the ground is all dead. And in the midst of all of that, it's like we're waiting for someone to get up and say something in this barren land. And you know, the clouds are up there and it's just desolate, but the clouds are ready to break and it's just ready to happen, but somebody needs to do something to bring the fruit. And he said, in the middle of all that, in the dream, you're sitting in front of me just like you did tonight. You came and sat in front of me just like in my dream. That's what I knew I had to tell you. And he said, in the dream, I pushed you. And when you went up front, you started speaking and the sky opened and everything turned green and everything started to blossom and there was all this fruit all around you. Now, I don't know if that means anything to you, but, uh, oh, I end up in the desert called Santa Cruz, right, eventually. But the point is that sometimes God will speak through dreams that are meant for us to encourage others with, but sometimes God will give us something that we are to keep to ourselves, amen? Maybe it comes out later. But this is going to be a source of encouragement to him because God's given him a vision, God's given him a dream, and because he has, it's going to help him in the midst of the difficulty. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, he, has a, he finally comes out and says to the church at Corinth, you know what, they're going after him, he's going through trials, and he reminds them, you know what, 14 years ago I knew a man who had a vision and was caught up into heaven. And you know what we find out, he hasn't told anybody for 14 years, but for 14 years all the trials he went through, God was reminding him and using that vision of heaven that he had to keep him going. 
And sometimes in the midst of the trials, God is going to remind you, you I have something I want to do through you, and where you are right now is preparation for that, so you just keep going. And that's what's going to happen here with Joseph. He's excited, and so he tells his brothers. Here's what he tells them. So he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. It's interesting that it's sheaves because later this is going to come into play several chapters down the road when it comes to food and these brothers being hungry. Then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaf stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. What? Let me tell you the dream I had last night. My sheep was standing up in the front, and your, all your sheaves came around me, and you fell down and were, you know, before me. Now, his brothers don't like him already. He's standing there in his beautiful coat of many colors. He's the favorite son, and now he's telling his older brothers, you're all going to bow before me. How do you think that gets over with boys? How do you think big brothers feel about that? Well, nothing's new under the sun, right? You know, Verse 8, and his brothers said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Joseph, not, he's not winning any popularity contest, is he? And you know what, guys? When we speak the things of God, we need to do it in love. But even as we do, be prepared that it's not always going to be popular. Amen? It is so true. And so... God, of course, knows that great difficulties are coming, and this vision is going to be a source of encouragement to him. But Joseph hasn't really learned. I think he might have been better off to keep this to himself. You know, Jacob had had visions, right? Jacob's ladder. Joseph's dreams and visions have come. They're going to be a source of great encouragement. He's going to need it. But look at verse 9. Then he still, he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers. You know, uh, they hated you on the first one. You might want to just hold this one to yourself. Let it be a source of encouragement to you. But look what happens. Look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bow down to me. Oh, hey, guys, I had another dream. It's not just you guys, but mom and dad, they're bowing too. And can you imagine his brothers? I didn't like you. I didn't want to hear what you had to say. You had to tell me about another dream, and now I'm bound to you. Now the moon and the stars are bound to you. Now the sun, the moon, everything's bound. You know, you get to Revelation chapter 12, and that is spoken of about Jesus Christ. Amen? Another parallel between Joseph and the Lord. Now look what it says. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come and bow down to the earth before you? But notice Jacob. His brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Why? Because Jacob had had visions. He had seen Jacob's ladder. He knew God could speak in that way. He had first rebukes his son, but in the end, he at least holds it in his heart, kind of takes a, a wait-and-see attitude. So here's another dream coming to him. His father's going to keep it in mind. But guess what? All these dreams certainly are going to come true because God says they will. But before they do, we're now going to enter into 13 years of trials. Okay, here's the dream. Here's what's going to happen. Here's my calling upon your life. But guess what? You're going to go to school first. You're going to go to the school of trials and difficulty so that you might be used mightily by me. 
13 years. That's kindergarten to 12th grade, man. He's going all the way through school in preparation. So a man God uses is loved by the Father and hated by the world. God gives him a vision. And then third, he is faithful and obedient to his Father's will. Now, God knows what's going to happen in Joseph's life just like he knows what's going to happen in yours. One of my favorite words is providence. Providence, pro-video, to have seen beforehand. Isn't it awesome that God already knows what's going to happen to you tomorrow and the day after and the day after, and he's not going to be surprised by any of it. And he knew what was going to happen to you that's happened to you in the past that you were surprised by. He wasn't. He's a faithful God, and we need to learn to trust him and learn that in the midst of what I'm going through, this is preparation for something greater. And because of that, we're going to see that Joseph is faithful to do the will of his father. Now, I will say this before I move on. It is difficult to wait 13 years for the dream to come true or the vision to come true. And in 13 years, he's going to become arguably the second most powerful man on the planet. But you know what's far worse than waiting 13 years for God to develop character in you that he might use you? You stepping out into a position that you're not prepared to be in. Amen? If Joseph had stepped in at that point, he wasn't ready. And too often, maybe you're here tonight and you, you, know, you feel like God's given you a vision or God's given you some direction or God's put a burden on your heart and you're wondering why it hasn't happened yet. Maybe, just maybe, God is still preparing you and developing your character so that when the time comes, you'll be ready. Now again, it's not in us, it's in Him, but God's doing a work in us to prepare us to be used by Him, amen? So that's the heart of what's happening with Joseph. And it's a good word for us tonight, that we would not step out in our own strength, that we would not step out based on you know, what we think or what we feel or what we believe, but that the Lord would be the one moving in us and through us. It says in verse 12, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. Isn't it interesting to go to Shechem? Where's Shechem, remember? It's 50 miles away, and it's the very place where they had slaughtered all the men, where they had committed that mass murder and vengeance for Dinah. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So his brothers go off, they send no word back. It's been long enough that he starts to be worried. And he probably was worried because remember that after what happened in Shechem, he said, are you gonna, you know, what's gonna happen to us now? All these other peoples are gonna wanna kill us because of what you've done. His boys have been gone a long time and he might even be thinking, I wonder if they're dead. I've got no word back. Who can I send? Oh, Joseph. He calls for Joseph. How does Joseph respond? Here I am. Just like Samuel. Samuel, here I am, Lord. I love this, and I love this response, and this is the heart of a man or a woman that God can use. He responds in obedience to the request of his father. He calls for Joseph, and his only response is, here I am. So he sends his trusted son out. He said, please, verse 14, go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks, and bring word back to me. So he sent him out, to the valley, out of the valley of Hebron, and he sent him to Shechem. So he starts to go on this 50 mile trek. This wasn't his dad saying, hey son, could you take out the garbage? Have you ever noticed how, why is it that 
you know, kids can run up and down throwing a football for four hours, but the eight steps to take out the garbage is like death. Have you ever noticed that? What? They go, oh, you know, it's like it's, can you, and here he, he says to him, hey, son, I think they're about 50 miles away. Go see if you can find them. This is not in a plane. This is not, he didn't have a GPS, right? He's going 50 miles out to Shechem to find a bunch of sheep and his brothers. There's no hotel he can go to. You know, he doesn't get to call anybody for directions. So he goes out 50 miles. And look what happens in verse 15. Now a certain man found him. And there he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, what are you seeking? And he said, I'm seeking my brother's. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said, They have departed from here, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now, we can just read that and think no big deal. Well, Dothan is another 20 more miles. So he goes 50 miles. He gets there and, praise God, divine appointment. Somebody there had heard his brothers speaking, knew where they went. See what happens when God's in control? He's going to lead you. And what happens? They go 20 miles, 20 more miles, and he finds to head towards where his brothers are in Dothan. You know, God's divine appointments cannot be avoided. And Joseph travels the 50 plus miles only to be disappointed that they're not there, but to find a man who gives him the direction that he needs. It's interesting that Dothan means two cisterns or two strong wells, you know, big storage places for water. So the man finds Joseph. There's no coincidence in the kingdom of God. He gives direction to this man who's being willing to be used by God. See, I believe the reason that he was found by God is he's willing to be used by God. He was like, here I am. Okay, yes, Lord, I'll go. And no doubt, Lord, help me find my brothers. Lord, help me find my brothers. He gets there. They're not there. A man shows up. I heard him talking. Here's where they are. And he went down to go find his brothers. So a man God uses... He is faithful and obedient to his father's will. Now notice, he faces persecution even from those closest to him. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near to them, they conspired against him to what? To kill him. Is this a little drastic? They saw him afar off. I have an idea they saw that shiny coat of his. You know, he's out in the desert, it's all white sand, he's walking along, and all of a sudden you see that striped coat, here it comes. And they saw him afar off, oh, here comes little tattletale punk brother with his shiny favorite coat, probably got another dream to tell us about, right? Can't you imagine, I mean, this is Pastor Dave, you know, I I, I try to put myself in people's shoes. I try to, you know, if I'm sitting there with the guys, here he comes, oh man. We've been away from him for a while. It's been kind of nice out here without, you know, Mr. Goody Two Sandals following us around everywhere. And, you know, here he comes. He's chasing us down. I wonder what he's going to tell us this time. And so they start talking, and as he gets closer, they say, you know what, let's just kill him. They don't say, let's get him in a headlock. You know, let's, let's beat him up. Let's take his coat. No, let's kill him. Boy, their anger is fully aroused. Typologically, his brothers represent the nation of Israel wandering from their father's house while searching for greener pastures out in the world. And Joseph represents Jesus sent by the father to the chosen people only to be rejected and slain by them. Can you see this picture? 
His brothers are going around trying to find the greener grass somewhere out in the world. In the midst of all of that, here comes the son sent by the father to go out and reach out to them and to find out about them and to bring them home. And instead of receiving him when he comes, they plot to kill him. Boy, that's a picture of Jesus Christ, isn't it? It's exactly what we see happening here. John 1, 10, 11 says, He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Their plan to kill Joseph was not in the heat of passion, but it was a premeditated act. They saw him afar off. They were filled with envy and hatred. They were angered by his dreams that they would one day bow down to him. They desired the throne themselves and didn't want to give it up. Boy, that's just like us. We don't want to give up the throne. That's the reason that people turn away from Jesus Christ. Notice it says there in verse 18, they conspired against him. The word there means to act treacherously. So they were stirring it up. They were plotting and planning as he came closer. Verse 19, then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. It's like I said, I'm, I'm sure of it. Here he comes, probably got another dream to lay on us. Verse 20, Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. Doesn't this have the same tone of the way they mocked our Savior? Hey, if you're the king of the Jews, come down off of that cross. You know, you've healed other people. You know, deliver yourself. You cast out demons? Come on, let's see if you're really God. Prove it. Let this dreamer, let's see what's going to happen of his dreams. We're going to wipe out his dreams when he gets here. We won't bow to him if he's dead. Guys, do you know that you can't overcome God's plan? Do you understand that? You can try to circumvent it. You can't overcome it. God's in control. God's faithful. And God is greater than we are. And he always will be. And I'm so thankful for that. So watch what happens. They're coming out. They see him coming. Now, verse 21, but Reuben heard it. Reuben's the oldest brother. He had the most reason to be mad at Joseph, by the way. He was the oldest. He should have had the birthright. He had more reason to be mad than anybody else. But watch what he does. He heard it, and he de- it says there, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him that we... That, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. So here was Reuben's plan. Reuben's plan was, look, I'll just tell him that we don't want to kill him at all, or that we're going to kill him or we'll do something to him later. Let's just throw him in the pit, and then when we leave, I'll sneak back around, I'll pull him out, and I'll bring him back to dad. Reuben was probably the one tending the sheep because he was the oldest. And so he gets the brothers because he is the oldest brother. And have you ever noticed how sometimes one logical person in a bunch can change everybody's mind? Amen? Everybody's plotting to do something really stupid. And one person goes, hey, this is a stupid idea. I often ask my kids that. Did any of you think this is a stupid idea? Well, yeah. Did you say anything? No, that's why you're here. Grab your ankles, right? You know what I mean? I mean, the SWAT comes, the discipline comes when we have the conviction of the Holy Spirit and we refuse to speak up because we're more worried about what people think. Praise God that Reuben, at least at this moment, is saying, hey, bad idea. Let's not kill our little brother. Kind of dumb, kind of overboard. Okay, he's got a shiny coat. Let it go, right? Now, Reuben speaks up. Praise God for one who would, but notice he's facing persecution, even from those closest to him. Let's finish up. God uses even the ungodly actions of men to bring about 
his perfect will in his life. Look at verse 23. So it came to pass when Joseph had come to his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, just like they stripped our Savior of his robe, the tunic of many colors that was on him. Can you imagine when they got a hold of that robe what they must have been saying? I have an, I have an idea they took turns putting it on. Don't you? Oh, look at me in the coat. What do you think? I look, I look better than him in this coat. And can't you just see him and just tearing on it and just upset and angry and envious? That's how the world is. And then they took him and cast him into the pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. The word there for a pit is really a cistern. It's where they held water. And so the water was empty. It was all dried up. They're out in the desert. So they push him into the cistern. It's narrow at the top, wide at the bottom. There's no way he can get out without help. And there he is laying at the bottom of the cistern. He comes to tell his brothers to find out if they're okay. He no doubt sees them and is excited that they're all right. He's traveled 70 miles. He's running toward them. He gets there. They grab a hold of him. They rip off his coat and they pitch him into a pit. Now, this isn't quite correlating with the dream I had, right? Because again, sometimes there's going to be trials. Sometimes there's going to be things that have to develop our character before the end result takes place. It's interesting that right here we don't see what is said. But when you get to Genesis 42, Reuben says, do not sin against the boy. But before that, Joseph pleads out to his brothers and it says he has anguish in his soul. So you can hear him. He's sitting at the bottom and he's crying out to his brother saying, please, don't leave me here. Please, what have I done? Please get me out. And he's got anguish in his soul. And notice the hard heart of his brothers because look what it says they do. And they sat down to eat a meal. How hard-hearted are you? You push your brother into a pit, you're leaving him there, you've stolen his coat, and you just travel a little ways off, and he's crying out from the pit, and you sit down and just have a meal together. You talk about hardened hearts. Maybe you feel that way about how some people treat you sometimes. It says, then they lifted up their eyes. Here's God's divine plan. And looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh. Isn't that one of the gifts they brought for our Savior? On their way to carry them down to Egypt. So they're sitting there, and they look up, and they have no conscience. They're hearing the cries of their brother. They're making merry. They're not worried about him at all. And all of a sudden, along comes a caravan. And one of them comes up with an idea. Hey, Look what happens in verse 26. So Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. Uh, You might want to remind yourself of that again. This is our brother, so it's not so bad if we just sell him into slavery. Let's not kill him, let's just sell him into slavery. Now guys, was it by chance that that caravan was coming on its way to Egypt? It was God's divine plan that that caravan was passing by at that very moment. Why? Because God's plan was always that the children of Israel were going to be in Egypt. That Joseph was going to be in Egypt. That God was going to use Joseph in Egypt. So God, by his divine plan, brought about the perfect circumstances at the perfect time. I'm so glad that God's in control of the details. Amen? And so they thought they could make a profit. They're Their whole motivation is wrong. They're moved by the wrong motivation. Uh, These are ungodly guys coming by, and God's still going to use it for his glory. Then the Midianite traders passed by, so the brothers pulled Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, 
and they took Joseph to Egypt. This tells us a young man, the price was 20 shekels for a slave. When he got to be fully mature, it was 30 shekels, 30 pieces of silver. Who was sold for 30 pieces of silver? Jesus Christ. Sold for the price of a slave, both of them, and sent down to Egypt. They send their brother away thinking they'll never see him again. Now, in finishing up, last point. Even as the world seems to be crashing down around him, he still trusts that God is in control. Now notice all the events that take place after this. So Joseph has now been sold. He's going down to Egypt. He's going to end up in Potiphar's house. And Reuben's been out watching the sheep. And he returns to the pit. His brothers leave. He thinks they're still in the pit. He doubles back. He goes to the pit. And he looks in. And his brother's not there. Indeed, Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes. So Reuben is grieving. Reuben is mourning. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more. Where shall I go? Here's what that means. I'm the oldest. When I get home, dad is going to ask me what happened to Joseph. What in the world am I going to tell him? I got nothing. Where can I go? What shall I say? Guys, when we're outside of God's will, we feel that way. We're out and abandoned. We have nowhere to go. Guys, good news for us, we can always turn back to the Lord. Amen? Now, let me, let me ask you a question. What do you think Joseph would have done if one of his brothers was thrown into the pit and sold to the slaves? I believe Joseph would have either run after them or gone home and told his dad, right? Hey, you know what the other guys did? They threw Reuben in a pit. He was sold into slavery. Let's get some camels up and go down to Egypt and get him back. Right? That's what a godly... Now, he's, he's burdened by it, but not enough to tell the truth. Reuben's grieving, but not enough to make a stand. Almost finished. So now what happens? What happens when you tell one lie? Or you've you, you got to tell another one, don't you? So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. Then they sent the tunic of many colors and they brought it to their father and said to them, we have found this. Do you know whether or not this is your son's tunic or not? Boy, how, how hard is their heart? You go and take his coat, you dip it in blood, and then you go give it to his dad, his favorite son, the son whom he loves, and says, hey dad, is that Joseph's coat? Looks kind of like it. Acting like they don't know what it looks like. And they bring it to him. Now this wouldn't work today. DNA testing would have wiped this out in five minutes, right? Let's have this tested. This is goat's blood. That ain't your brother. But you know what happens in this case? He looks at it, and you can imagine the response. His father's going to fall apart. I can't even imagine. Verse 33, and he recognized it and said, it's my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. Can you imagine his father is wailing and weeping and mourning and crying out about his own son being torn to pieces? And not only that, feeling guilty because he was the one that sent him out to get his brothers and they stand there and they say nothing. This is a hard heart. And they're going to let their dad believe this for 22 years. For 22 years, he's going to believe that his son is dead. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and all his daughters aroused to comfort him. What what hypocrisy. You sold your brother into slavery. You lied to your dad. You pretended he was dead. He bought the lie. He thinks his son's been torn into pieces. And then you come up and put your arm around him to try to comfort him. That's not comfort. That's hypocrisy. 
All his sons and daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Again, this is a sign of those who are so hard-hearted. So, his own son torn to pieces. He's weeping, beyond, and they could turn it around in five seconds. All they'd have to do is tell him the truth, right? And yet they sit there. Why? Because they're more concerned about their position than they are about their father's heart. This is the picture of those who turn against the will of the Father to do their own will. They don't care how much it grieves the heart of God the Father as long as they get what they want. Lord, help us as Christians to never be so steered over in our conviction that we get to the place we're not concerned about what God the Father thinks. We're only concerned about getting what we want. Amen? And that's the picture we see here. And then finally, now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. You know, in the middle of all this, you've got a father mourning, and you've got a son who had a vision from God, who is now enslaved, who now thinks no one's ever going to come get him. But I want you to notice something about Joseph as we move on, as we close. Joseph, in the midst of this, is going to stay faithful. Joseph's not going to complain. He's not going to murmur. He's not going to doubt God. He's not going to question God. His brothers think that they've gotten over on God, gotten over on their dad, tricked everyone around them. And in the midst of all of this, God is still in control. Amen? So, Joseph has gone from chosen son to slave He's been removed from his home. He's from his father. He's lost his position. He's been betrayed. He's been enslaved in a godless pagan land. But as we're going to see, in the midst of all this difficulty, as all the things around him seem to be crashing down, he still trusts that God is in control. Hey, tonight, no matter what 2008 has brought you, and I know for some of you this has been maybe the most difficult year of your life, Be reminded that God is faithful, that he loves you, that you're his treasured possession, that he's still in control, and he has great things in front of you. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this example of Joseph. We look forward to watching in the coming chapters just how you take this young man who purposes in his heart to serve you, a young man who continues to tell the truth in the face of great consequences and circumstances. And you use them in such a mighty way. And Lord, I pray for each of us, you'd help us, Lord, not to be satisfied again with the status quo, not to be envious of those around us who God is using in a mighty way. But Lord, help us to have the heart of Joseph, to just lay our lives at your feet. Lord, to be willing to be used by you. When you call our name, may we say, here I am, Lord. Father, we love you, we praise you. You're a great and an awesome God. We're so glad that you are in control and you're so faithful. We don't know what the future holds, but praise God, we know that you hold the future. May you be glorified in 2009 in the lives of everyone in this room. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said...